Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And will you pray with me? God, whose son rose, ascended, was seated, and is judge, encourage our embodiment of Jesus, who is love. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in a sermon series titled Animating Images. And this series is attempting to recapture ancient Christian imagination by engaging the Apostles' Creed. However, to be clear, rather than using the Creed as a means to explicate faith, uh, which must be believed or else, always else in so many religious traditions, this series is inviting us to ponder creedal statements as icons that rouse our imagination and animate our lives by divine love. As you've heard now for a few weeks in the early church, the Apostles' Creed was used as a catechism that helped prepare Christians for baptism on Easter. And so for millennia, people have engaged this creed throughout Lent as a way to more deeply ponder the ways of Jesus and the heart of God. So far, we've covered God, Father, Almighty, Creator, and then two phrases about Jesus. The first phrase includes the words, Christ, Son, Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And the second phrase, which we looked at last week, includes the words suffered, crucified, dead, buried, and descended. This morning, we're going to consider the third and final phrase about Jesus, which includes these words, rose, ascended, seated, and judge. In two weeks, we'll cover the last two lines of the creed, which read, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so this morning, rather than spend time on the word rose, we're going to focus our time on the words ascended, seated, and judge. We'll start with ascended and seated. These words belong to the part of the creed that reads, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Question, where is Jesus? Answer, says the creed, Jesus ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. With this on in mind, I'd like to go on a little uh, biblical journey together. As I grew up, I was told by a lot of people, uh, God is up there. And I was also told by some people that God was, was in here. Of course, some religious people will qualify the statement, God is in here, based on what a person believes. But I also learned that God is everywhere. For as the Bible tells us, in God we live and move and have our being. And then there's this wild thing called the Trinity. The Trinity is a Christian doctrine that states God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. 
Now, that's a mouthful and a lot to unpack, but for now, I'd like to think about where God is in light of the Trinity. The thinking goes something like this. In creation, God said, let us make humankind in our image. Us. Let us make humankind. Who is us? Well, Trinitarian theology says that us is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit out there working together in creation. But then God the Father, who is up there, is sometimes also down here. For example, down here walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Down here in a burning bush that Moses sees, approaches, and talks to. Down here on top of a mountain meeting with Moses and giving him the law. And sometimes in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit comes down here too, speaking through the prophets, empowering the judges. We're told that the Holy Spirit fills Solomon's temple on the day of its dedication. But you see, the Father and the Holy Spirit always seem to go back up, up there somewhere. But then there's Christmas. At Christmas, the Father and Holy Spirit are up there, but then Jesus is down here until Jesus grows and is about to begin his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, there's this really interesting moment during Jesus' baptism in which the Father speaks from up there, this is my son down there, and the Holy Spirit descends from up there as a dove down to here upon Jesus. But then the Father remains up there, and Jesus, now filled with the Holy Spirit, is down here. And every once in a while, we read that Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on others while saying things like, be filled with the Spirit, or receive the Spirit. But this must be somewhat temporary, because just before Jesus' ascension, he says to his disciples, go and wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so even those that Jesus had breathed on and given the Spirit to seemed to be in need of going to Jerusalem to receive the Spirit again. And then after life, ministry, death, and resurrection, Jesus ascends up there where we're told that he sits on a throne at God's right hand. Now, shortly after Jesus' ascension, 10 days to be exact, there is Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit that went up there with Jesus comes back down here. Stick with me, I'm almost done. Note, during those 10 days, between Ascension and Pentecost, if we're thinking in very concrete terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all up there, not in the world, nor in people. For as the story goes, God is up there, Jesus ascended up there, and the Holy Spirit who was in Jesus went with him and had yet to descend back down here on Pentecost. But then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in tongues of fire and fills the disciples. And so... The Father and Son are up there, and now the Holy Spirit is down here. However, the Bible tells us it won't be like this forever. We're told that one day heaven that's up there will descend here and wed with earth. And when this happens, Jesus will give the keys of the kingdom to his Father, who with heaven has now come to earth permanently. And so in the end, the very end, the book of Revelation tells us Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all here on earth, as is heaven. Did you follow that? You have to admit, it was kind of fun, right? Okay, to summarize where things currently stand, thinking in concrete terms, the Father is up there, the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne, and the Holy Spirit is here on earth and within God's children. And on the one hand, this makes sense because these are some of the images that were given to understand the variance between where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reside. But on the other hand, to get stuck here, 
to remain in concrete thinking and terms is to misunderstand the complexity and mystery and wonder of divinity. I'll give you just a few examples to help show how unclear these lines are when it comes to where God is. And to help keep things simple, we'll just focus on the New Testament. In the ascension, we read that Jesus went up into the sky. So where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is in heaven, seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He's up there. And down here, after Pentecost, is the Holy Spirit. Father and Son up there, Holy Spirit down here. This, we're told, is now the Holy Spirit's domain. But then if you read the scriptures with these concrete ideas about where divinity dwells in your mind, you'll begin to notice some cracks in your theological concrete. For example, Acts chapter 9. Remember the story? Paul, who was Saul, was on this road to Damascus when he encounters the Christ and he goes blind and he hears Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? And this is, of course, Saul's conversion to Paul. And Paul makes clear that he has been commissioned, just like the other disciples, not by the Holy Spirit, but by Jesus himself. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is supposed to be sitting at the right hand of God while the Holy Spirit is here working out God's will. But, but in Paul's story, Jesus was, was right here. And then there's Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to the church in Philadelphia, and he says, listen. I am knocking at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and I will eat with you and you with me. Isn't that interesting? In this chapter, it's as if Jesus is inside of all of us, knocking on some kind of door in our heart. And if we open that door, Jesus is saying he somehow metaphorically enters into our hearts and shares meals with us. He communes with us. But isn't Jesus supposed to be up there, seated at the right hand of the Father? And then there's these promises made in the Gospel of Matthew, like chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the incarnation is all about God being with us through Jesus until just before the resurrected Jesus ascends, at the very end of Matthew, Jesus declares, and we heard it this morning, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And he says at the very end, remember, and this is really important, I am with you always. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Wait a second, with us? But Jesus is just about to leave and ascend into heaven. What does he mean he is, he is with us? You see, the lines aren't as clear as perhaps we think they are. And the reality is is that lines are very rarely straight. And so, what are we to do with this? What does it all mean? And more specifically, what does Jesus ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father mean? Well, let's begin with this. The point of Jesus' ascension is not more and more lines between God and creation or between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The point of Jesus' ascension isn't more delineation. It's actually the opposite of that. One of the most substantial points of Jesus' ascension is integration. It's integration. You see, more than anything else, Jesus' ascension tells us that Jesus is no longer here on earth in bodily form. Now, I get that this is super obvious, and and it's a clear point, especially after taking you on this Where's Waldo journey of God. But just stick with me a little bit longer. 
think about this point. Jesus' ascension tells us that Jesus is no longer here on earth in bodily form. But the scriptures are clear that he's not just up there on a throne at the right hand of the Father. Remember, in Acts 9, Jesus is a voice redirecting the life of Saul. In Revelation 3, Jesus is somehow wonderfully, mysteriously inside of us all, knocking on our hearts, asking us to open ourselves wide to God. As an example of this, consider the experience of the great Catholic mystic Thomas Merton. He describes this as his salvation moment. He's at mass in a church and experiencing communion for the first time. And he writes, Presently the priest's voice was louder. Then soon the server was running. That was for me, Father Moore, who turned around and made a big cross in absolution and held up the little host, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And my first communion began to come toward me down the steps. I was the only one at the altar rail. Heaven was entirely mine. That heaven in which sharing makes no division or diminution. But this solitariness was a kind of reminder of the singleness with which this Christ, hidden in the small host of bread, was giving himself for me and to me and with himself the entire Godhead and Trinity. A great new increase of the power and grasp of their indwelling that I had begun only a few minutes before at the font. I left the altar rail, went back to the pew where the others were kneeling like shadows, and I hid my face in my hands. In the temple of God that I had just become, the one eternal and pure sacrifice was offered up to the God dwelling in me. It was the sacrifice of God to God and me, sacrificed together with God, incorporated in his incarnation, Christ born in me, me, a new Bethlehem, sacrificed in me, God's new Calvary and risen in me, offering me to the Father in himself, asking the Father, my Father and his, to receive me into his infinite and special love. Isn't that beautiful? I wonder if any of us have had a moment like that coming to Eucharist on a Sunday morning. In a church, on a road to Damascus, standing on a mountaintop and gazing at the stars, during a moment of surprising quietness in your car while life is flying all around you, reading a poem, listening to a song, going for a walk, frying an egg while the children scream. These are the moments These are the deeply profound, line-delineating, line-crushing moments during which we sense something, feel something, maybe even hear something that moves us to open ourselves up just a little bit more than yesterday, to open ourselves to this God, to this divine pull, to this sacred longing to continue evolving and growing as humans. That is the invitation. And that moment of awakening to and welcoming more of that gentle voice, that soft tug, that loving pull to become something more honest and whole and good day by day, week by week and season by season, well, that is revolution. That is what it means to be saved in an ongoing fashion. That is Thomas Merton and so many others over time all around the world through all generations and even religions noticing the divine pulse, breathing life into this world and into our very own lives. You see, this whole ascension thing isn't about a person, place, or thing. Ascension is about the manifestation of a way that is called good. 
It is a way out of chaos and darkness over and over again. It is a way into light and life made possible by love and mercy over and over again. It is a way into participation in a kingdom called heaven, which is made noticeable in this world by its subversive grace and manifest peace. A kingdom here and now marked by extravagant love that is healing and growing and expanding us all into children of light and life. You see, Ascension tells us, stop looking up there. It actually tells us that from Acts chapter 1, while Jesus was going up into the sky and they, the disciples, were gazing toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? I love that. Ascension tells us, hey, stop looking up into the sky. Ascension tells us, don't get so caught up in the lines of delineating where God is and isn't. Ascension tells us the divine cannot be contained in one place. The ascension tells us the spirit of Christ is here, there, and everywhere. The ascension tells us give yourself to life. The ascension tells us give yourself to this world because God, the divine, is in it and through it all. And one final thought about ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father. These ideas tell us that Jesus the ways of Jesus have authority in this world. This is why Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That's the point of sitting at God's right hand, authority. And so Jesus at God's right hand tells us that the ways of Jesus, the ways that we're talking about and meditating upon and pondering together as a faith community, these ways have authority because God's ways are nothing less than perfect love. You see, the ways of Jesus have authority because they lead humans to flourishing, which is truly biblical salvation. Okay, so from ascended and seated, we now proceed to judge. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Uncomfortable laughter. The words belonging to this part of the creed read, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. About the afterlife, what if I were to tell you that this is what happens? Everyone who dies immediately descends down to a place called Hades. Now, there's one caveat, uh, martyrs. So if somebody dies because of their faith in Jesus, they're a martyr. So if you die as a martyr, you don't actually go to Hades, you go, you go straight up to paradise. But if you're not a martyr, uh, you go down into Hades. In Hades, there are two chambers. One chamber is for people who believe in God and follow Jesus. And it's not terrible, but it's not great. It's not as bad as, as hell, but it's not as wonderful as paradise. And in this, another chamber, you have the unbelievers. And it's, it's kind of bad. I mean, it's not as bad as hell, but, but it's not as good as what the believers have over in their chamber of Hades. Now, what if I told you that you needed to believe that is truth about the afterlife? And what if I were to say eventually there will be a final judgment, at which point Christians will join the martyrs up in heaven in paradise, and the non-Christians will depart to a far worse place than Hades, where they will physically suffer forever. Now, to be clear, I don't think this. If I did think this, and I wanted to teach in a seminary or pastor at a church, there wouldn't really be a place for me. Today, I don't know of any Christians who think these thoughts about the afterlife. And yet, and this is very important, this is very much what Christians thought about the afterlife in the second century. 
what I just shared with you is the explanation that comes from the great Tertullian of Carthage in the second century in a book that he wrote titled Treatise on the Soul. This is what everyone thought about the afterlife who lived within a Christian tradition in the second century. Now, using Tertullian's second century perspective on the afterlife as a historical uh, point of reference, as we move forward in time into the third, fourth, fifth centuries, eventually into the medieval era, and ultimately into contemporary life today, thought on the afterlife has grown more and more robust. That is to say, thought on the afterlife has become more imaginative. For example, how many of you back in college or grade school uh, read uh, Left Behind, the Left Behind series? Remember that? Go ahead and raise your hand. You don't have to be embarrassed. There's much grace here. Yes, I read them. I read them at nighttime, and then I would like cry myself to sleep. <laughs> very frightening. Very specific. More specific even than Tertullian on what is going to happen after we die. And that brings me to a, a slide that I'd like to show. This is a 15th century painting by Italian painter Domenico di Michelino titled The Comedy Illuminating Florence. And it basically gives you a window into what becomes Dante's Inferno. And this idea of some kind of place called hell, which is over on the left and more so down at the bottom. And then there's this, this uh, spiraling mountain that you can work your way up into the seventh heaven. And of course, you have some kind of priest there with a book in Latin describing what is going to happen in the afterlife and over on the right, as though it's in great competition with Hades and hell on the left, is the church, the truth of God. Now, again, using Tertullian's second century perspective on the afterlife as a point of historical reference, I'd like to move backward in time and to talk about what was thought about the afterlife which is less and less and less robust. That is to say, thought on the afterlife was less and less imaginative if you move back in time. For example, it's not until late in Jewish literature, the book of Daniel, which is the latest book written in the Hebrew scriptures, it's not until late in Jewish literature that the Hebrew scriptures even mention judgment after death. Isn't that peculiar? And so until the book of Daniel, at least as we see it in the scriptures, when a person died, they merely died. And judgment wasn't connected to any kind of elaborate imagination on the afterlife, much the opposite, in fact. For the majority of the Hebrew scriptures, catch this, death, death was judgment. Death was judge. That is to say, when a person died, their death was their judge. Which means there's nothing more that a dead person can say or do. They are now dead and are thereby eternally judged by the life that they no longer live. Their life is judged. There's no more to be done. From death as judge at one extremity to Tertullian's judgment somewhere in the middle to modern day Christian perspective that includes a detailed explanation on the afterlife at the other extremity. There is vast territory and thought of conviction that can be referred to as biblical or historical or Christian when it comes to the afterlife. And so this morning, let me clear it all up once and for all about the afterlife. You ready for it? <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I, I could tell you what Baptists think about the afterlife. I could tell you what Episcopalians think about the afterlife. I could tell you about what Catholics think and what Eastern Orthodoxy thinks. But these are merely perspectives. 
built on perspectives, built on perspectives, built on perspectives that have evolved over millennia. And so rather than pretend like I know what exactly will happen after we die, I'd like to spend the last portion of this sermon exploring something that feels knowable and truly helpful, which is this. Why? Why judgment? Why is judgment specifically named in the Apostles' Creed? And why do we humans, as we continue to evolve and progress in consciousness, why do we increasingly care about judgment in an afterlife? I'll begin with two stories, and then I'll give you two words. Story number one. George Perry Floyd Jr. was an African-American man who was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. During an arrest after a store clerk suspected Floyd may have used a counterfeit $20 bill on May 25th, 2020. I am certain that as I share these facts that most of us, if not all of us, can see the video footage in our mind's eyes. George Floyd's face is down on the concrete with a white police officer's knee on his neck while Floyd repeatedly expresses pain and his struggle to breathe. Story number two, a Ukrainian family's town is invaded by Russian troops. To survive the family, grandparents, kids, grandkids, aunt, uncles, aunts, uncles, and cousins divide into three groups and they leave Ukraine in different directions. They settle in three different countries and not having much money, have very little hope that they will ever see each other face to face again. I know that these stories are difficult to hear. They're difficult because they're real. And you see, these very real difficulties were and continue to be the impetus for an ever-growing perspective on the afterlife and on divine judgment. When we watched the video of George Floyd's murder, we all cried out from the deepest part of our being, that is an injustice, didn't we? And we simultaneously cried out, there must, there must be justice. And while there's some satisfaction in Floyd's murderers being held accountable, is, prison, is a prison sentence for murder justice? Or let's say it gets escalated. Is a death penalty for murder justice? And if not, what would be just? And who gets to decide? And what about all the people of color and AAPI folk and queer folk over the centuries who have been inhumanely treated and unjustly harmed, who in this life never experienced justice? Is there no healing? Is there no salve? Is there no balm for what once was their life? And what about the Ukrainian family split into thirds who never see each other again? Or that child whose parents pass away while they're very young? Is that it? Will they never be reunited? You see, in the book of Daniel, when it was finally written that there's some kind of divine judgment, this idea, it grew up, it sprung from a broken heart. Israel was lost in the Babylonian Empire where they faced innumerable injustices. Israel was lost in the Babylonian Empire where many of their most important relationships were forever destroyed. What happens when a person dies without justice? What happens when people who are deeply connected are suddenly and irreversibly separated in this world? Well, it's from concerns and questions like these that the notion of an afterlife and divine judgment rise. 
And although we Christians cannot definitively explain an afterlife, central to its meaning is the importance, the central importance of justice and relationship. Those are the two words, justice and relationship. I guess a better way to say it could be because justice and relationship matter so deeply, Christians hope deeply in an afterlife and in some kind of judgment that makes all things well. In conclusion, Jesus' way of life lived now deeply matters. It is eternally authoritative. And although some people use the idea of an afterlife and judgment as reason for not caring about what happens here and now, I believe the opposite should be true. Which is to say, because justice and relationship matter so deeply, we as Christ's body on earth must enact justice and enjoy relationship with every fiber of our being. Until perfect love is made so manifest that justice and relationship are no longer concepts, but eternally lived realities. My encouragement for us this morning, I think, would be to go from the picture that I showed you to, to this picture. This is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper. You see, we spend so much time being concerned about who is going to get judged and how judgment is going to happen and who goes up and who goes down that we forget that we are invited now to elaborate participation in a common table around which every person belongs. And as we embody this way of Jesus in the world, there will be more justice today. There will be more relationship today. There will be more heaven on earth today. There will be less hell today. And tomorrow we can entrust our lives into divine love in whom we all move, breathe, and have our being. Will you pray with me? God, whose son rose, ascended, was seated, and is judge, encourage our embodiment of Jesus today because justice matters and relationship matters deeply. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm-hmm.